When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the best slate money ever recorded. I can tell you this straight off the bat because I'm unbelievably excited to say that, well, actually, let me start with an apology. I'm going to start with an apology, which is that I apologize to all of you that there have been episodes of Slate Money in the past where we have neither credited nor linked to Matt Levine. Um, This was a horrible oversight, and we'll try never to do it again. As you all know, as everyone knows, Matt Levine is the greatest blogger in the world. He is the most intelligent person in the world, and he's basically just amazing, and it is just the most exciting and fabulous thing that he is in the studio in New York with me and with Kathy O'Neill and this is therefore the Matt Levine is amazing special issue of Slate Money. Matt Levine, welcome. Hi Felix. <laughs> and oh, I should I should mention your affiliation. You are at Bloomberg View. I am. He he writes funny and insightful and genius things for Bloomberg View. So even if you read nothing else on Bloomberg View or on Bloomberg, do read Matt Levine. But, and this is like one of those Ginsu Knives commercials, that's not all. How much would you pay for a Matt Levine special edition podcast? Well, guess what? We're going to throw in at no extra charge a Shane Farrow. Shane. Hello. Hello. Shane Farrow is kind of the most awesome person in the world. She's, she used to work with me at Reuters. She knows everything about everything. Um, she is in California right now, so sadly can't join in the champagne chugging that's going down at Slate HQ. But we have her on the phone, and we're excited about that. And you, Shane, now that you have left Reuters, have turned up at Business Insider. Correct. I'm an economics reporter at Business Insider. And sadly, I can't share the champagne, but it is 78 degrees here. So, wow. That will make up for it. And finally, as ever, we have the fabulous Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and the blogger at mathbabe.org. 
Hi, Felix. And I just I just want to jump in and say that I also have a crush on Matt Levine, and in particular his footnotes. Oh. Matt, Matt Levine does have the best footnotes in the world. We were we were t- he started blogging at a website called Deal Breaker and had great footnotes at Deal Breaker, and then he moved to Bloomberg View and his footnotes were less great at Bloomberg View. But then he got married. We were talking about this earlier, and as a wedding present, the publisher of Bloomberg View gave him footnotes, and now he has the best footnotes ever. This is a true story. This is a true story. So this is. Because it's such a special and amazing issue edition of Slate Money, we are going to have Matt in the driver's seat. You're kind no. of the guest host. <laughs> no. And you're going to introduce three different topics. You, Matt knows exactly what he's doing because he's a consummate professional at everything. Um, are you going to start, Mr. Levine, with insider trading? Because I hope so, because that's my favorite subject of yours. Uh, then let's start with insider trading. Let's start with insider trading. Uh, so the deal is, um, these two guys, uh, Todd Newman and Anthony Kiesen, they were hedge fund managers. They bought some stocks. They bought in particular stock in Dell and NVIDIA. And they did that based on a bunch of things, including some people who worked at Dell and NVIDIA had told people who told people who told people things about those companies that, that weren't publicly known. Newman and Kiesen were arrested for insider trading. They were they went to trial. They were convicted. They were sentenced to four to six plus years in prison. They appealed, and a couple of weeks ago they won their appeal and uh, are now no longer guilty of insider trading. It's pretty much the biggest news in insider trading law since you know since since at least since this you know the latest wave of insider trading crackdowns happened. The appeals court dramatically narrowed what counts as insider trading. There's not really any dispute that Newman and Kiesen had information that came from people who worked inside these companies and that wasn't public. What was debated is, you know, whether they should have known that it was inside information and also whether uh, the information was leaked to them in exchange for some sort of personal benefit to the people who leaked it. So to move back a little bit, when you talk about insider trading law, it's important to note here there's really no such thing as an insider trading law, is there? In this country. In, in, well, there, well, and this is, and because we've talked a little bit about Newman and Kiesen in the past, the bigger picture here is this is this question of, it's, it's a bit like, I, I feel like insider trading in the US is a bit like the UK constitution. It's sort of unwritten. And you have to construct it from a series of jurisprudential precedents rather than there just being a simple law you can go to and say, well, what does the law say? Yeah, that's that's right. And, and James Stewart in the Times had a column about how we should have an insider trading statute, which I think a lot of people sort of think at some level or think that we do have one and are surprised that we don't. Um, it's not about unfair advantages. It's about what you could sort of loosely call stealing from a company or from someone. So the idea is that you should have unfair advantages in the financial market. You should do research. You should try to find out stuff that other people don't know. And then you should trade on that. And, and you know, your learning things will make financial markets better and will make you able to earn a profit. What you shouldn't do is like the classic insider trading where you're a CEO of a company and you know that the company is going to miss earnings. And so you sell a bunch of stock and then you're like, oh, you know, sorry, I didn't tell you. That's the sort of core of what insider trading is meant to get at is is executives of companies kind of playing unfairly with their shareholders. And the rest of insider trading law kind of comes out of that. So it's like, well, if you're a CEO, you shouldn't 
trade on inside information, but you also shouldn't like get bribed to give inside information to other people. And that's kind of what's happening in Newman and Kiesen is, you know, the, the people who ultimately gave them the information, the court felt that they hadn't really been bribed. And even if they had been, Newman and Kiesen didn't know about it. So they couldn't be guilty of the insider trading under the kind of theory that, that, that the courts actually look at. So the James Stewart proposal is that insider trading should be, or trading should be illegal any time that you're trading on inside information, basically. Any time that you're trading on non-public information about a company that you shouldn't have. And what I, I mean, just to throw in that what I, one of the things I like about that, and I've said this before, but is that it simplifies the law. It makes the SEC lawyers have easier jobs so they can do other things which are more important. You know, if it does, let's say that, like, I, I, I will like that new law if it actually simplifies the SEC lawyer's job. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, financial markets are about finding out information that nobody else knows. And so there's all these stories, you know, the Wall Street Journal has been doing this for the last, like, two years. They have these great stories about people who, like, hire helicopters to fly over oil tanks to see how much oil is in the tanks. And then they trade on that. Um, and there's a lot of this stuff where... Um, you know, there's there's a there's a very hazy line between knowing something that no one else knows, and uh, knowing you know quote unquote inside information. Like I think there are some European countries that have statutes that say you can't trade on material non-public information, and they just can't possibly mean that, right? And in fact, they only enforce it against people who are trading on what looks like inside information to us. But you know, as a as a sort of rule of law matter, as a like matter of whether you want to put people in jail, it's actually sort of harder than it sounds to say, well, you can't trade on any material non-public information because and everyone is trading. Yeah, on and if you want price discovery, you need people to think that they have an edge; otherwise, no one would trade. Right? I yeah. agree with you about that, Matt. I think it would be impossible to consider that a tight rule. But one thing about this case that we've been discussing is that, you know, we're expected in this country, uh, our attorneys generals are expected to somehow prove what was going on in the mind of the people doing the trade. And the good thing about that rule over there is that you don't have to delve into the mindset. You just say, is it, was it material information? Right. Oh, yeah, you, do, you just need to, you just need to make a decision that someone was an insider trader and then there's no defense because you say, well, you had material non-public information, but as Matt says, virtually all traders have material non-public information yeah i mean if you if you look at like the law as it stands now if you look at the court decisions they all say there's no uh requirement for an equality of information in american capital markets right it's just it's not part of the mindset the the mindset is different people have different information and that's good that makes for more efficient and and neither yeah exactly you wouldn't want perfectly equal information because then there wouldn't be any markets there wouldn't be any reason to trade shane what's your view on is is insider trading a victimless crime i kind of think a lot of the time that it is i think a lot of the time that it is but uh, there there are certain instances where it's not and that's what gets people riled up about it right um but i i sort of think that most of the time it's just it's it's something very concrete that you can point to to say, like, this is bad, and it's pretty easy to explain to people why it's bad, and I think that's what makes it, it makes a good story. So that's what makes it easy to go after. Yeah, but it's like a frustrating story because, because you know, 
the the way it's explained is always this is bad because it was unfair. It was it was not a level playing field. They had information that no one else had. But that's just like that's that's every day in the markets, and it's and it is, you know, it's frustrating to see. Uh, prosecutors say, oh, this guy's going to go to jail because he had information that was unfair for him to have. You know, that, that happens a lot. And it's, you know, like I said, the, the, the kind of the real story of how, inside, how American law sort of conceptualizes insider trading is this notion of like theft of like, you know, did the, did the insiders kind of take information that wasn't theirs to use? And that's a, a more complicated story to explain. It doesn't have, doesn't kind of, it's not as intuitive as the unfair information story, but it's more accurate. Let's, let's consider a, a parallel universe, you know, where insider trading was rampant and almost unprosecutable. Right. So then my question is, who gets hurt? Who yeah, no, I prefer that world in the following sense. Um, just as Shane said, a lot of this is kind of like easy to prosecute. So it's kind of like lip service to keeping the market safe for average investors, like people like my my parents. Um, um, no offense, parents. Um, so I would like the rule, it to be a wild west so that my parents would just be like, there's no way I'm going to put my money in there. I don't know what I'm doing. So for me, the, the actual victims are those people who, who, you know, do all sorts of silly things with their money, thinking that they have some kind of um, secret sauce when they really don't because they're not on the inside. Which, which brings me, I was, I was um, toying with the idea as I came into the studio today that my number would be zero. And the reason I was going to have my number as zero was that zero is the trading commission that is being charged by a new company called Robinhood on um, stock trades. And the PR people from Robinhood are the top PR people in all of Silicon Valley. And they have taken on Robinhood, um, which is a great boon to Robinhood. Now it's in the New York Times and it's all over the place. And the spin is that they are literally quoted in the New York Times as being um, energized by Occupy Wall Street. And they the Occupy Wall Street happened and they said to themselves, wow, what we should do is set up a stock trading platform with zero commissions. And that's exactly what Occupy Wall Street would want. Wow. <laughs> I did <laughs> not know that's what Occupy Wall Street wants. Yeah. Um, could you explain that to me a bit? I'm uh, yeah, well, I can't. But the but the fact is, <laughs> but the fact is, 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 as Shane will attest, and 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 oh, and the other thing they they're doing is they're saying that this is this is stock trading for millennials because the mm. reason that millennials aren't trading stocks is because the five dollar commissions are too high, or student debt, another possibility. That, as a millennial, that's but incorrect. The, but the real reason that millennials aren't, aren't trading stocks is because they're smart and they know that trading stocks is a really stupid thing to do and a great way to lose money and that you shouldn't be trading. And, of course, the one thing which no one ever says about Robinhood is that it's being it was founded by two people who used to have a high-frequency trading company. And what they're really doing is creating a platform to get them a lot of what's known as you know, retail order flow so that they can then high-frequency trade against that retail order flow. Um, it's a terrible PR stunt on their part. It's, terrible. Yeah. I, I, anyway, I need to By the to way, get, the people who charge like eight bucks a, sh- a trade for, for you know, the E-Trades of the world, it's the same, yeah, they, they, it's the they same make, economics. So, right? yes, the reason why E-Trade and Schwab and all those people can charge so little is precisely because your orders are valuable to them. They can fill your orders at the national best bidder offer and then they can sell that order flow to high-frequency traders and the high-frequency traders will pay a lot of money for that because retail individual investors are stupid. And if you just do exactly the opposite to what individual retail investors do every single day, 
thousands of times a day, you're going to make money. Um, Matt, we've had enough insider trading and market structure. What would you like to talk about next? Uh, let's talk about banks. I know. <laughs> He's so excited. Okay, Shane, you have, a, you have a question for Matt about banks. How much did Bank of America make in the third quarter? Oh, good question. Yeah, one of my favorite things that I wrote about this year was, um, was uh, I was having some conversation on Twitter about after Bank of America announced its third quarter earnings. And they announced, like, earnings of $168 million, and their that's that's before preferred stock dividends. So the earnings to the common shareholders were like negative seventy million dollars or something. And someone was like, Are "These earnings positive or negative?" And I was like, "Well, you know, one is positive, one is negative. There's no, no answer to that." But if you sort of take a step back, you get like this really, really, um, you know, it, it becomes even more of a morass because you know, Bank of America's earnings were one hundred sixty-eight million dollars, but that's like. The, the way those earnings work is is that's like largely, you know, they're a bank. They have a lot of financial contracts. And a lot of what earnings are are just the change in value of those financial contracts, just the mark-to-market change in, the, in value over the course of the quarter. And Bank of America has like $2 trillion worth of stuff. And so if that $2 trillion worth of stuff changes by 1% of 1%, that's like 200, that's like more, $200 million. It's more than the value of their earnings for the quarter. So if, if, if they were just, you know, off in their measurement by the tiniest amount, they would actually have negative earnings for the quarter. And I wrote that. And then like two weeks later, it was a little longer, they announced that actually they had negative earnings for the quarter <laughs> because of this like magic time traveling thing where um, they, uh, you know, they had done some bad stuff with foreign currency rigging in like 2011 or something. And they were getting closer and closer to being caught. And by like two weeks after the quarter ended, they knew enough about how they were going to get caught that they were like, "Wow, well, we actually lost 400 million extra dollars last quarter," um, which which, which just, I just goes found to magical. prove that. Yeah, so 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 bank earnings are especially magical. I think all earnings are magical in one way or another. Yeah. But bank earnings are a whole different order of magnitude of magicalness. They're, they're these sort of rainbows and unicorns of pulling numbers out of thin air, and you can more or less have whatever numbers you like. And this is a reason, one reason why um, stock market investors in general don't like buying banks, because they have no idea what's going on in those banks, because you get the financial reports, and it's, it's just magic layered on, upon mystery. I mean, Shane, you're now a financial journalist at Business Insider writing about what's going on inside banks. Do you have a clue what's going on inside banks? Not not at all. Okay, uh, I just want to uh, throw my, my question actually is, oh. <laughs> at, at what point do these bank earning numbers start to matter? Like, at what at what magnitude do you say, okay, they, they probably definitely lost money last quarter and that, like, is going to matter. You know, after I wrote about this, I got an email. I, I heard from um, like a, 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 an accounting sort of trade organization who it turns out had published a, a, a paper proposing what they call confidence accounting, which is just basically instead of saying we made $200 million last quarter, you just put a like a, like a bell curve and you say, you know, with 50% probability we made this much money, but here's kind of the margin of error and, you know, you figure it out. 
Um, so I mean, like you can you can sort of like you can kind I of. I love that idea. Just yeah. g- just give a probability distribution instead of a yeah, yeah. point figure, and, and that's what it, that's what it is anyway, right? I mean, right. you look at like sort of and like banks sort of like gesture at that, right? There's like there's like value at risk numbers that are meant to sort of show how much you could lose in a day, and you you know. So Matt, is it a real problem for capitalism that the most uncertain accounting? in the stock market is precisely the accounting for the financial institutions which are the most systemically dangerous if they fail. The, w- the way I think of banks, you know, I, I sort of joke, half-jokingly say this sometimes, like, you know, banks are fundamentally a device to conceal information, to conceal risk, right? So you have a bank and a bank basically makes loans to people that are risky and then it piles them all into a big pile and it, and it issues liabilities against those loans. It issues deposits or, or, or you know, repo liabilities or all these other things that are sort of meant to be risk-free money-like liabilities. So a bank transforms risky investments in the economy into risk-free debt investments in the bank. Well, now you've really made me sleep well tonight, <laughs> given that some, what is it, about 20% of my um, S&P index fund is invested in Financial yeah, yeah, it all works out okay. But like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we will hope. This is this is you know, the this, price then, this yeah. is the season of hope and goodwill. So I will have hope and goodwill that Wells Fargo, which is now officially the biggest bank in the world, um, is not hiding dragons and other evil. Yeah, but species. I mean, lots of people hope hope things like that, and, and so you have like you know like a bunch of banks like City and Bank of America, the, the really weird Too ones. Too big to fail banks. Are, um, you know, they, they, their stock trades at below their book value, right? They're like, here's how much all our assets are worth. Here's our liabilities. Subtract them. You get this number. And then the stock trades at like 80% of that number because people are like, eh, we don't really believe you that things are worth what you say they're worth. Wells okay. Fargo trades above book value. Okay. Can I ask a question that's sort of tangentially related to this? The other big bank story this year is sort of bank fines. And how much are those bank fines actually hurting the banks? And are they showing up in, in earnings? And, and are they showing up in the, in the share prices? This is a good question, Matt. Um, are, is, is J.P. Morgan's share price significantly lower than it would have been if it hadn't had to pay $40 billion in fines? Probably. I mean, you know, like, the, like, like bank, you know, share prices are forward-looking, right? And so, like, there's a there's a... Every time a bank announces that it's paying a big fine, its stock goes up because they're like, oh, well, that's behind us, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, $40 billion is a lot of money, right? I mean, like, for, you know, and, and, and banks to some extent trade on, on forward kind of earnings expectations, but also kind of trade on asset values and, and, and taking away $40 billion of assets, you know, for, for, for nothing is, is not great. <laughs> uh, it's not great. Um, and, and there is like this sense that, uh, that like this is baked into future earnings that you know like especially with bank of america which is every like three months has 10 billion dollars in fines like you 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 have this feeling that like this is not going to end and like this is kind of the new normal for banks is that uh you know they're going to keep getting caught doing bad things and like that's going to keep being a drag on their earnings and but insofar as it does hurt the stock price it hurts the stock price because just because of the magnitude of the fines and not because, well, this is a criminal organization. I, I, I 
can't imagine that that has any effect at all. <laughs> um, yeah, because, because that's not sure a surprise. So, I mean, yeah, people are suddenly like, oh my God, I just realized. Yeah, there, there are sides to that debate, right? I mean, I think a lot, of, like, there are definitely a lot of investors who are like, oh, you know, pr- people actually, are being so mean to J.P. Morgan, they didn't do anything wrong. It's actually you know? quite hard to buy stock in criminal organizations. So, you know, the, ba- the, ba- the financial value. sector is one of the few sectors where you can buy, a sto- buy stock in a criminal organization. And given the proportion of world GDP, which is criminal, you know, you think you need some exposure to that. Yeah. Um, we're, going, we're going to finish the wide ranging and kind of <coughs> random discussion with, um, I believe we're going to talk about... Well, can we talk about Argentina, Felix? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's talk about Argentina. What's going on? Um... Okay, so the the dumbed-down version of what's going on in Argentina, and thank you, Kathy, for asking that, because it's very easy to get caught in the woods here, is that Argentina has two classes of bonds. Mm -hmm. Well, it actually has three now, but let's just, for the purposes of this, say just two. It has the bonds which it was happily paying ever since 2005, and it was making coupon payments, and that was most of its debt, and that's what everyone thought of when they thought about Argentine debt, and if you went out into the market and bought Argentine debt, that's what you were buying. And then it had a bunch of defaulted debt, which everyone more or less ignored, which dated back to the 1990s mostly and was held by a bunch of hedge funds who were litigating to try and get paid on it and everyone didn't really care about it very much except for a few lawyers. So we can call those the vulture bonds? We can call those the vulture bonds if you want. Okay. And what happened is that the vulture bonds wound up persuading a judge in New York called Thomas Grisey to to bring this injunction and force Argentina to pay off the vultures in full before paying any of its normal bondholders. Mm-hmm. And because Argentina refuses to pay off the bond, the vultures in full, and it has reasonably good reasons for refusing to do so, um, No, right now no one is getting paid, except, as Matt says, a bunch of local law bondholders in Argentina. And so what Argentina has said it wants to try to do is swap all of its bondholders into local law bonds, but that's much easier said than done. And that doesn't go through New York in particular. So exactly. You, the judge can't... Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the ones that exist now, the yeah. local bonds now don't go through New York, so they right. can pay those and are paying those. The ones in New York moving those to Buenos Aires is, 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 is probably a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah basically so, impossible. So now let's go back to January 1st, 2015. What's happening then? So the, the vulture bonds... Yeah. Well, sorry, the new bonds... New bonds have a clause in them which says that if any of the vultures get good treatment, mm-hmm. then we get exactly the same treatment. I see. Um, but that clause expires at the end of this year. Oh, I see. So in theory, uh, Argentina can, can start making nice. It's easier for Argentina to start making nice with the vultures come 2015. Which, but do we want them to? Do we think that's a smart idea? I mean, And did you call them more grown up if they do? Is that what I heard before? I'd like to pin you down on that a little bit. Well, I um How Matt, much I mean how much would Argentina be suffering if they were well, nice? Well, were so-called grown up. Matt, is is Argentina suffering as a result of all of these decisions and 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 inability to pay its debts? Uh it is harder for them to raise foreign reserves than it would be otherwise. It it doesn't seem to be, you know, the the the, the um there doesn't seem to have been a big, you know, kind of step function change between 
back when they were paying off their debt and now that they're not, right? I mean, it seems to have been, seems to have made things marginally worse, but it's not, you know, it hasn't been the crisis that people were sort of expecting. Um, we, we should say, though, that the economy in Argentina is not great. Not, but uh, it was never great. I mean, it's, it's not, not great because of the default. It's not great because it's run by a bunch of incompetents. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, yeah, Argentina is not the most sympathetic actor in this whole story. Um, they, they really have been running... It'd be hard to find the, the most sympathetic actor in this story, actually. Well, actually, I mean... Probably what, not the vulture funds, either. Well, no, the vulture funds are never sympathetic. Um, and then, you know, historically what they do... I mean, the last big country which Elliot won lots of money against was Peru. And Peru was actually more sympathetic, significantly more sympathetic than Argentina because they were, you know, run by technocrats who everyone could more or less get line up behind and say, well, it's unfair that you have to blah, blah, blah. Argentina is run by a bunch of demagogues who are running the economy into the ground. And while it's unfair that the vultures be paid off in full, um, it's also quite hard to have sympathy for some of the more um, stupid things that Argentina has been doing domestically in terms of... um, you know, firing anyone who actually wants to tell the truth about what's going on in the economy and fudging all of its official statistics and printing way too much money and, you know, basically reducing the economy, you know, to to a state in which, even by Argentine standards, it should be much, much stronger than so it is. So if you were a citizen of Argentina, what would you be hoping was happening? I guess that's my that's my perspective. My vantage point would be not somebody who's actually actively screwing up uh, you know, running the country of Argentina, but a, a citizen of Argentina, if, the, if if I'm them, I'm like, wow, you're not paying off stuff and things haven't gotten that worse. How about you just continue to not pay off stuff? Eventually, they probably run out of money is the thing. Well, I mean, so long as you have a primary surplus, you're okay. Mm-hmm. But um, you're right. I mean, and this is this is something which they can do for a while, but no one in the government is saying that that's what they want to do. No mm-hmm. one in the government is saying that they want to just remain in default on everyone. They're all saying that they really want to make these debt payments that they agreed to made, make in 2005. They just don't want to make the debt payments that they agreed to make in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And what the New York courts are saying is you can't make that distinction. If you make one, you have to make the other. And we, we have actually talked about Argentina a bit in the past on this show. What we haven't talked about is what the IMF is trying to do. And the main tool they're looking at right now are these things called collective action clauses. And what they're saying is that every country in the world, starting with, you know, Germany and moving down from there, should put these things called collective action clauses in their bonds and not just the kind of collective action clauses that we've always seen in a lot of European bonds and even some American bonds, but kind of extra special ones which... If you do a bond exchange like Argentina did and you get a majority of your bondholders to agree to a restructuring, then everyone else gets bailed in and you don't get the holdout problem because the technical term is actually not vultures, Kathy. It's actually holdouts. Holdouts. And and so the trick is to create bonds where holdouts get bailed in and therefore can't continue to litigate after the exchange has been successful. Um, that's the IMF's hope, although I'm not holding my breath on that one. Well, what's what's the argument against this? Against the collective action clauses? Yeah. Well, there's 
the the main argument against it is not so. I, I think people in general want them, but you can only introduce them from here on in. So if you have a 30-year bond which was issued a year ago, then that 30-year bond is still going to be in effect for the next 29 years, and it's not going to have those collective action clauses. So the holdouts will just buy that bond rather than the bonds with the CACs. So it's not that people don't want these. It's just that no one thinks they're going to do a lot of good for at least a decade or so. But this is, this is um, the point in the show... Matt, at which you and the rest of us will come up with our number for the week. Um, I feel that Matt, as the honorary host, should go first and lead the way. I'm the honorary host. Huh? Um, okay, I brought a number. Uh, my number is 65 milliseconds, which is about one fifteenth of a second. Um, and that is how long it took a guy, well, a guy named Michael Kasha, but really his computer, to do a trade in euro dollar futures that he's now he's about to go to trial on for uh for the crime of criminal spoofing so the accusation is that basically what he does is he says you know i want to buy a whole lot of euros and he puts in an order to buy a whole lot of euros and all the other little computer programmers all the other little computer programs rather say oh wow a lot of people want to buy euros we're going to bid up the price of euros and he doesn't actually buy them. He sells just a few euros. And he then uh, uh, puts in a big order to sell and kind of gets out of it the other way. So he just makes a tiny bit of money by deceiving the other algorithms into thinking that there's a lot of demand to buy when he wants to sell and into thinking that there's a lot of demand to sell when he wants to buy. So there's one trade in the, in the indictment where he spent, where over the course of 65 milliseconds, he risked like $58 million worth of Euro futures of orders that he put in and made $175 in wow. illicit profits and that $58 million of risk in that one fifteenth of a second. So it's going to trial soon. He just filed a motion to dismiss it. And, and, and uh, it's a very controversial case because it's the first criminal prosecution for spoofing ever. And it's kind of like the, uh, like insider trading. And, you and so he's the, the, basically the prosecution is saying that, you're not allowed to put in an order for to buy $58 million of stuff if you don't really want to buy $58 million of stuff. Yeah, it's just like insider trading. There's a little bit of need to look into the uh, into the heart and mind of the guy doing it, although in this case it's his algorithm, not the guy. And this is the... Which is which jurisdiction is this who's bringing this case? It's a fed, I think it's a federal prosecutor in Chicago. Isn't wow. this kind of stuff like supposed to be rules of the actual exchange aren't they don't they have rules against spoofing oh yeah but 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 they're all they're all vague right because because people put in big orders and people cancel big orders all the time for legitimate reasons and Mm so it's it's a question of what your purpose is and here there's you know there's there's evidence that his purpose was in fact to kind of trick other algorithms and and help him make this i feel like the code is probably a smoking gun more than any mindset Oh, right. It's it's the mindset of the algorithm, not yeah. of the guy. So right. you can look at the code, yeah. and, and I agree. Unless um, he said, oh, I, for, I accidentally programmed it like that. No, yeah. but, it's, but, it's, but you know, imagine trying to convince a jury this is what this code is thinking, right? I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a somewhat hard case. That's really interesting. Shane, would, would you ever risk $58 million to make 175 bucks, even if you were only risking it for 65 milliseconds? Um... If I had $58 million? <laughs> oh, wait, I forgot you don't have $58 million. Uh, he did it a lot, by the way, so he made, ended up yeah. making more than 100 million. What's your number, Shane? My number is 5%. 
which is the amount that the economy grew in the third quarter. Woo! Uh, which is, I think, the highest it's that number's been since 2003. Um, and it's just like... We're, all, all we're stepping the, on the gas. The economic data lately has just been super, super good, with the notable exception of wage growth. Um, Always a notable exception. And and so, it, I don't know, it, it's really interesting. Consumer prices, um, like, all... All of the consumer numbers are going up, um, but but wage growth is still not super great. So it's it's going to be interesting to see in the next few months of economic data whether whether that number ends up coming up and it's just lagging behind the other indicators, or if really we're in this economy where everything is growing except for the amount of money that people are making. In which case, the economy can't really continue to grow. It all depends on the definition of growth, of course. Um, Okay, my number is 2 to the 10th power, because I wanted to say it like that, because it's about binary stuff. It's the number of IP addresses of North Korea. It's 1,024, if if you're counting. Um, And so this this came up um, because uh, North Korea went off the internet. They fell off the interwebs yesterday for some... Um, strange reason that no one really knows why. Um, some people think that it it was a um, denial of service attack or a distributed denial of service attack, which just means that a bunch of hackers um, like focused their um, packets just to be sent to the um, to the computers that are connected to the web in North Korea. So the shocking thing is that it's only they only have a thousand twenty four IP addresses. This is like really really a small number. Um, just to just to give you some idea. Um, in in uh, the average city block in New York, it's about the same. It's about a thousand in the average city block in New York. In my house, there's like maybe five IP addresses. My phones have IP address. My uh, my um, wireless does anything that connects directly to you know like wireless or something like. Um, actually, I should say a wireless account, like a wireless router, has its own IP address, and anything that connects wirelessly to that router has a local IP address, not a global IP address. So, for example, Felix. Your wireless scale doesn't have its own IP address, (laughs) just a local IP address. But even so, I'll bet you have enough iPads and things and phones and smartphones hanging around so that you have about six or seven IP addresses at your house. Add those up, you get uh, billions of IP addresses in this country. Even in um, Afghanistan, which is about the same population as North Korea and about as poor, they have 100 times more IP addresses. So going back to the reason, of course, we're interested in this is the Sony hack the chances of um, North Korea having actually successfully done that is, is pretty low. Well, no, no one thinks they kind of did it from within North Korea, but they right. they hired people to do it. Yes, we believe that. Another. We believe that. And I do one one caveat is that um, you know large systems can be amassed by one IP address. So, like the Columbia Open wireless system has one IP address. So it's not proof that there's only a thousand computers talking to the rest of the world in North Korea. There are probably large systems in North Korea, but in terms of the interface with the rest of the world, it's very, very, very tiny. I just want to clarify one thing yeah. that Kathy said, which is that Felix has a Wi-Fi enabled <laughs> bathroom scale with a CO2 monitor, as we learned earlier today. So that yeah. is actually just why I came up with that number. It's, it's, just it's a, the only reason it. why. I'm just going to let that one slide. And... Um, my my number is three hundred and thirty seven, um, which is 
the value of one Bitcoin in dollars. Hmm. Uh, this time last year, it was just over a thousand um, dollars per Bitcoin. Oh, that's sad. And the Bitcoin is a tr- has proved to be a really bad investment in 2014, and um, is you know performing more or less in line with the ruble, really. Um, the, in, in terms of, p- but the thing which intrigues me about Bitcoin is that this time last year, there was this website called Coindesk, which did a poll of its readers saying, well, what do you think is going to happen to Bitcoin over the next year? So where where should it be right now if those readers were more or less correct? Fifth, they got 5,500 responses. So this is serious wisdom of crowd stuff going on here. And of the 5,500 responses, 56% of them thought it would be over $10,000 by now. Hmm. Um, and this time last year, I also have to say that um, people it, people think of Bitcoin as being an incredibly volatile cu- currency. And I entered into a bet with another guy called Felix, who said that right this time, you know, early January, the value of Bitcoin would be either less than 200 or more than 1,350. That was the range that we chose. I, I was basically short volatility, and he was long volatility. And what you sold the Bitcoin collar? I, I sold yeah. the Bitcoin collar, and I and I'm I think I'm going to win a bottle of wine on that bet. But what's fascinating to me is that virtually everyone was wrong about Bitcoin. Some people thought it would go to zero. Most people thought it would be over 10,000. But this kind of long, slow decline into sort of increasing irrelevance that we've seen over 2014 without any big crash, no one saw this coming, really. But that's actually how things die in the real world. It's people, they don't explode or implode in, in, a, in a blaze of publicity. They just kind of grind lower until people forget about them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been forgetting about Bitcoin, but it's weird. I mean... <laughs> On the one hand, like you'd think like l- lower volatility and sort of like a slow inflationary trend would be good for its use as a currency. On the other hand, if everyone forgets about it, then it's not a useful currency. Well, that's it for this week. Shane, thank you for coming on this show all the way from California. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Kathy. And a special thanks to um, the one the only Matt Levine who more or less invented the whole concept of footnotes and That's therefore true. needs <laughs> needs much in the way of um, plaudits and prizes so if you have any prizes listeners do send them in to Matt Levine at Bloomberg and uh, Lexington Avenue New York it will find it um, and meanwhile do subscribe to the show if you liked it or even if you didn't we just need those subscriber numbers they're wonderful for us Um, Search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review. Send us your feedback. Uh, The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. And I promise that if you send anything from that, I will make sure you get that. Uh, The producer for Slate Money this week was Audrey Quinn. The managing producer was Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Shane Farrow and the one and only Matt Levine, I'm Felix Salmon. So I'll talk to you next week on... It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.